there are 17.5 million people in financial vulnerable circumstances. And that is one in three adults in the UK. Some of these vulnerabilities can be seen in the form of financial exclusion. Welcome to Debt Talk Podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking about the cost of financial exclusion. This time, I've experienced panellists who developed local and national programmes to make personal finance fair for all, a leading representative of the debt advice sector who has been working tirelessly to support marginalised communities in financial crisis and who are excluded, and finally a campaigner who is trying to change the current financial system. My panellists are also to provide Debt Talk listeners' top tips to those who are trying to address financial exclusion. For those who are listening to Debt Talk and want to share your experience or want to listen to a subject of your choice, you can send me an email, ripon.ray at yourdoctordebt.com or on Twitter, yourdoctordebt. As I said in this episode, I have Diane Burridge, Community Finance Propositions and Segmentation Lead that provides funds for financial exclusion projects. Jerry During, MBE, founder of Money A&E, a money advice and education charity. Joe Cox, Senior Policy Officer on Household Debts, which is part of a global movement to end unjust debt and poverty. Let me start with Diane, Barrage of Fair for All Finance. Diane, when I'm speaking about financial exclusion, what do I actually mean in current times? Well, first, thanks, Rippon, for inviting me to talk about this today. Um, financial exclusion can be experienced in different ways, but it's most often described as a difficulty, inability, or in some cases, a reluctance in, in accessing a range of financial services to meet different needs. So that could mean uh, the lack of a bank account and and the financial services that come with that, such as an overdraft. It could be uh, not being able to access affordable forms of credit and needing to seek more expensive or illegal forms of borrowing. But it also includes a lack of access to other key financial products, such as insurance, savings, mortgages and pensions that can enable someone to protect their families and belongings, purchase their home, plan for the future and and save for the retirement. People can move in and out of being financially excluded in some way, depending on what is going on in their lives. So such as the breakdown of a relationship or losing their job or home. The figure that I've highlighted earlier, 17.5 million, not a shocking figure. How do we get to that figure and how is the figure calculated? So it's one in three adults, you know, 17.5 million people. Um, we calculated this number as part of our work at Federal Finance that we, we started last year um, on the segmentation of financially vulnerable groups of, of people. We usually describe the number as at least 17.5 million now because it's likely this has increased as the cost of living crisis has deepened. Uh, we identified groups of people within the UK population that had common characteristics around how they were struggling with varying levels of vulnerability within their financial lives and also how they were behaving around the range of financial products and services. And this then created our overall group of, of 17.5 million. We then kind of ordered them around age, life stage and sources of income to create our individual segments. And these then segments provide much deeper insights into how um, their financial needs are being met or in some instances not being met in the current environment and also the different ways in which the cost of living crisis is is impacting on their lives. So some of the people within the 17.5 million, particularly those segments from the lowest incomes, will be experiencing or have experienced the various forms of financial um, exclusion we've talked about. So right now, One in three adults struggle to access credit from the mainstream. One in four adults in the UK have no home contents insurance. And about one in six adults have uh, no savings. Britain has 99% literacy rate. Why are we then failing 
in financial literacy and what has been the cause in financial exclusion for millions of people, in your opinion, in a developed nation like UK? The national, I think it's the National Literacy Trust, talked about eight and a half million people in the UK with a lack of kind of general literacy skills. The numbers are much bigger when we look at financial literacy and capability. So survey data from the Money and Pension Service showed that about 47% of adults don't feel confident in making decisions about financial products and services. I think it's also important to consider the lack of financial capability. It's not just about someone not having the skills and, and knowledge to understand and make informed choices about their money. It can also simply be not having enough financial capacity. So essentially not enough income to cover the most basic expenses or have income available um, to them to build a buffer of funds to improve their financial resilience in the medium to long term. Um, unfortunately, this lack of income can often be interpreted as having poor skills with money. And, and often that's not the case at all. I'm also um, thinking about the difference between the skills needed to manage your money in the here and now and, and day to day and those that might be needed to plan your money for the future. Um, in perhaps less chaotic financial times than we're experiencing right now, confidence, control and, and that well-being often shows up as being better in the here and now than, than it is in planning ahead for life events. The, the human attitudes and behaviours behind the statistics are quite interesting. Things like cultural impacts and the influences of how your family thinks about money and manages money, how you grew up. Also, if we look at how, how the complexities of the financial system itself have grown, the, the changes in social attitudes, retail-led culture, all of these changes have actually outpaced the ability of consumers to develop their own individual money management skills. I think we should also consider that simply teaching skills and providing knowledge won't necessarily solve the issue in isolation. People need to feel and kind of believe that the financial tools and products they have access to and the goals that they're setting are realistic and achievable. Um, alongside this, and, in, and really importantly, it's as much about financial, the financial services sector working even harder to simplify the way their products and services are presented, designed and tailored for different consumers to improve that overall consumer understanding of what's available to them. What work has Fair for All Finance has been doing to address some of the, within the context of financial exclusion? Fair for All Finance, um, our mission is focused on helping to change the financial system so that it serves everyone. So rather than addressing the societal issues that contribute to financial inclusion, although there is some crossover in the impact the work we do has on those issues, we're, making, we're working to make the financial system fair for everyone and transform it so that everyone has access to the right products and services whenever they need them. Strategically, we're prioritising increasing the availability of affordable credit to meet the need, partnering with banks and financial service providers to increase access to products and services, and also developing the market as a whole so that it consistently provides products that meet uh, the needs of all customers. We kind of deliver on these priorities by investing in organisations such as credit unions and other community lenders, we're already doing a great job of serving customers in financially vulnerable circumstances. We research and gather evidence to show what works to help solve the most pressing challenges. So our recent research on illegal money lending and our segmentation work are great examples of this. And then we partner with others to develop, test and fund new products, new services and technologies, such as our no interest loan, and consolidation loan pilots, and embedding benefit calculators into customers' journeys to help them maximise their income. We're also really focused on bringing people together to deliver on the policy and the regulatory change that's needed to create that market we want to see that serves everyone. You briefly talked about credit unions now, and also you're encouraging partnership and collaboration with credit unions. 
Now, apart from providing low rate of interest, what other services do credit unions offer compared to a mainstream bank? We we support credit unions and other community lenders, as I said, because they're already doing a great job of serving customers who are in varying degrees of financially vulnerable circumstances. Um, financial inclusion, not exclusion, is such an integral part of the DNA of these providers. Uh, credit unions are financial cooperatives who pool members' savings, uh, making it available to lend within those members. They're set up for the benefit of the members with any profits redistributed as dividend to them. They also have no other shareholders to satisfy. Um, there are about just under 400 credit unions across the UK with 2 million members, and it's growing. They offer savings accounts, access to credit at low rates, um, a range of products to serve people with different income levels and circumstances. Life insurance protection is provided um, to many credit union members at no extra cost. Many use different ways to help people save and borrow by linking up with employers and also serving particular industries such as the police force, postal workers and the transport industries. What's interesting, on the 29th of August, new legislation comes into force with the Financial Services and Markets Act, and this will allow credit unions to expand their product offer into higher purchase and insurance products. We also support credit unions because there's currently low awareness among consumers about what they can offer and the impactful ways that they're helping their members through the cost of living crisis with wraparound support, such as the benefit calculators we've talked about. We really want more people to know that credit unions could be an option for them. What other changes we need to see to improve both societal and individuals in preventing financial exclusion and we talk more about financial inclusion? I think I come back to all financial institutions need to deliver on their social goals and, and work together more closely to address the fundamentals of reducing barriers to access, improving their product design and delivery of services, collaborating with and supporting other providers to deliver the products that they choose not to and, and actively encouraging take up for all. So in practice, this means giving due regard to uh, creating an inclusive entry criteria that's tailored and realistic for the circumstances someone is in, uh, really authentically prioritising the customer need and support the design and delivery of products and services to wider and more diverse groups of customers and make it simple and rewarding for people to engage with the products or service that's being offered to them. Finally, Diane, where does the government place in addressing financial exclusion and currently what is the government doing to resolve this issue? Government does have a role in both legislating and supporting financial institutions to address exclusion. Um, the financial inclusion report published by the Treasury at the end of last year um, lists a number of initiatives um, including protecting access to cash through um, legislation with that Financial Services and Markets Act Supporting banks with their commitments to introduce fair banking hubs to maintain face-to-face -face banking services. Um, that's alongside the Financial Conduct Authority strengthening protections for consumers that rely on brand services. Increasing access to appropriate affordable credit by bringing forward the, the credit union legislation so that they can offer wider products and services to their members. 100 million of funding allocated to financial inclusion through the dormant assets. And that's the fair for all finance to scale up access, which we're, we're incredibly excited about. Um, working with the Financial Conduct Authority on the introduce of inputs with the consumer duty, working with the Money and Pension Service on promoting financial education, boosting savings, including the Help to Save scheme, and finally support for people with problem debt through the Breathing Space scheme. I mean, it's a long list. But there's always more that can be done to address such a, an important issue, Rhythm. Thank you, Diane. Um, let me get Jerry During, MBE, founder of Money &E, into this conversation. Jerry, based on what you have heard so far from Diane, what are your initial thoughts on financial exclusion in the UK? Yeah, I, I very much agree with, with Diane. Um, uh, and 
yeah, financial exclusion is uh, to my mind and our experience is often a, a very structural um, issue. Um, and we're seeing people who are from diverse ethnic communities and disadvantaged groups and young people living in those families and those groups uh, facing some real challenges. And um, it it's almost like what, it's almost like a poverty trap it's like a cycle that we see um so money a need does uh, money advice and money education for those who are facing debt or financial exclusion challenges um so we see lots of people coming to our offices really needing support around this kind of poverty trap issues these issues of debt uh, because of the cost of living and um yeah, really trying to educate people about things they can do to help them overcome some of these um, structural barriers that they're facing. Money a has been working tirelessly uh, on a grassroots level by, as you pointed out, Jerry, teaching about money and, and managing financial crisis. When I speak about low income, and you covered it a bit, what does that actually mean from the types of communities that you personally see? Yeah, I mean, they come in with, with a variety of issues. We're seeing, um, you know, one third of, of young people in London uh, the area where we operate are, are living in households that are living under the poverty line. Um, we're seeing we're based in Newham, so eighty percent of our service users are from diverse ethnic communities, uh, and they're coming in our doors with just issues around the cost of cost of living, trying to make ends meet. You know, there seems to be a lot of people are unable to get to the end of the month without facing problems, paying bills, and and and, and tackling debt issues. Um, so those are some of the things that we're seeing. We're also seeing people with lots of other social barriers, whether they're to do with health or language and cultural difficulties, um, uh, problems around employment. Um, so a lot of these people come in, come in our doors and they are facing a variety of problems and they really just need support in terms of knowing how to handle and navigate this really complex and difficult situation. Um, so that's kind of what it means for those that are coming in, you know, to, to, to our to our offices. You know, we've got lots of families living below the poverty line, lots of diverse ethnic communities coming in and um, having lots of problems trying to, you know, uh, allow their, their 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 income to actually reach 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 and, and spread throughout the full the full month. Um, and lots of people facing lots of social and cultural barriers as well, um, who who are having problems with with money and, and and they're financially excluded. They're unable to kind of get the support and the services they need to live uh, just a normal, meaningful life. Is there a correlation that you see between low income, minority communities, disability, and financial exclusion? If there is a clear distinction, why that might be so, and how? Yeah, no, thanks. That's a really um, interesting question. And yeah, we've been working in this area for um, a long period and we see that poverty and debt are linked so much to a variety of different social issues. Um, there's something that we are coining and seeing uh, at Money Any and amongst some of our partners. We've actually been working with Fairfall Finance on this as well, um, Diane's organisation, a, a number of others. We're seeing something that we're calling the ethnicity premium. It's very similar to the poverty premium. And it just means that people from diverse ethnic communities, often from middle to low income households, are facing a lot of challenges around poverty and financial exclusion. They're facing challenges around um, around their health, health issues and health Health, um, health support that they need to deal with those health issues. Uh, they're facing problems around employer employability. So, you know, either in un, insecure um, work with really poor conditions or they're out of work completely and have really low incomes. And, and, and also around housing as well. Lots of people from those diverse ethnic communities facing problems securing and living in housing and uh, facing homelessness a lot of the time. So um, we're seeing this thing that we're calling the ethnicity premium. And in terms of your question about how it's correlated, it, it links to so many 
it links to so many of these kind of social issues and you know these things that we're saying are creating this kind of poverty trap for people so you know the majority of people who come in our doors as i said 80 percent of them are from diverse ethnic communities um in terms of disabilities we're seeing more than 60% of people have some kind of health condition, and often that's a mental health condition as well. Uh, mental health and debt are so very closely linked. And, and financial exclusion is, is, is so linked to debt in the sense that often if people are struggling to pay bills, it affects their credit rating, it affects their ability to get more um, credit or more or access to just simple financial services to help them get through uh, their, their daily lives um and we're seeing a really massive correlation so as i said there's this massive link to a variety of different social issues but in terms of coming from diverse ethnic communities we're seeing there's a high link of sort of diverse ethnic communities from lower socioeconomic backgrounds uh, and we're seeing mental health is linked quite closely to debt and financial in, in, um, exclusion i should say as well um so there's a massive link and it's all under this this umbrella that we're coining the ethnicity premium. Jerry, you have the privilege to service financially struggling communities since 2011. What need you were trying to meet in the community and what has been your drive to create these changes? A lot of uh, how we work. So at Money A&E, um, a key part of the focus for us is something called lived experience. So um, I met Greg... Uh, the we're both the co-founders of Money A&E um, at Toynbee Hall, where I also met you as well, Ripon, and we all worked there uh, many years ago. And um, we had all experienced, well, myself and Greg had experienced issues of exclusion. So whether that's kind of related to sort of racial discrimination or exclusion, but also most importantly, um, linked to financial exclusion and debt that we'd suffered. I had had issues of debt um, in, in my childhood and many others after that I faced myself. So in my childhood, it was related to an experience of my father being made redundant and the struggles we had in our household at that time. Um, and I think the journey of how he got over that is a massive uh, motivator and driver for the things we do at Money a &E. And Greg similarly had um, issues that he faced as a young man when starting up his own business as well. And, and it was those struggles with debt and exclusion that kind of brought us together to kind of start thinking about how did we overcome those issues? What are the kinds of things that can be done? And also talking to our peer groups in the local area, we're both from sort of the same, grew up in the same area of East London. And we realised that a lot of our peers and friends who look like us um, um, from diverse ethnic communities and migrant communities or second generation, even first generation, were, 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 were in debt, but they weren't necessarily getting the support or they weren't reaching out for the support that they needed. And we wanted to know why. And, you know, it's complex. There's lots of different issues as to why people aren't getting the support that they need. But um, what we found is that lived experience. So people who understand the problems that you've been through uh, can use that and turn it into a kind of superpower, to be honest, as a, an asset to, to kind of help you to help others get through a similar problem. So when you've got people who've come from the same community as you and who, who have experienced the same issue as you, often that has a really massive impact in turning people's lives around and helping them um, reach solutions and get the support they need to overcome those challenges, especially in, in the face of financial exclusion. So that's been a massive driver of our work. It's that lived experience. And both myself, Greg, uh, uh, and myself as co-founders of Money A&E, um, that kind of drove us in wanting to support others who'd been in that situation 75% of our staff are people who come from the communities that we uh, we inhabit and work in. And um, we have a steering committee, which is made up of current and past um, clients and service users of our service who come and inform us about our service, inform us about the challenges they're facing, but also help us create new solutions to some of those problems. Um, so 
that lived experience, I think, has been a massive and key element and driving force be behind how money only started, uh, be be behind how we challenge financial exclusion and tackle those issues. Um, and yeah, it's a it, it's a massive thing that I think we're 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 looking to take forward and creating this thing called lived experience leadership as well. Um, so massive driver is that lived experience of the issues, people coming from the communities and facing the problems and challenges um, that they face, being actually the, uh, the the solution makers, the solution givers, uh, the solution designers of 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 how to overcome those social challenges like financial exclusion, debt, you know, these health inequalities, employability issues and housing problems. From your lived working experience on financial education and money advice, what has been the driving factor in exclusion on financial products for many financially excluded communities? Is it just poverty? It is poverty often. I mean, you know, Diane spoke about um, trying to make the financial um, system um, fairer. Um, and it is poverty. And there is a legacy, I think, of cultural deprivation in, in communities as a result of this. And, and what I mean by that is um, sometimes just having the lack of access to financial products and services leads to a variety of, of deeper issues um, that, that, that prevail in certain communities, keeping them in what I've called this kind of poverty cycle or this poverty trap. Um, so, you know, you've got, um, for example, there, there is lots of stats that um, Fair for All Finance themselves have been doing some research on, and they've found that, you know, it's, it's very difficult and that, diverse ethnic communities, their, their um, rates of receiving certain types of products and services like, like savings products or mortgages or loans uh, are often less when compared to their um, indigenous um, British counterparts. What that often means is that, you know, they're excluded from the financial system People often, you know, for some people, not all, but for some people, a home, owning your own home is one of the um, the biggest kind of assets you can have. It's something that's generational. You can pass down to your children and grandchildren. Um, and we're seeing that a lot of diverse ethnic communities are kind of uh, kept out of that system. And we're seeing that as house prices go up, as we have a, a massive problem with um social housing stock um, and, and, and private rents being very high. We're seeing a massive housing problem as a result of that. So homelessness becomes a massive issue. Um, this, this idea of communities not being able to keep wealth and assets within, within, within themselves and uh, not having access to, 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 getting, to getting those assets that will help them to be more financially included, build their own wealth. I mean, I just talked about in the sense of home ownership. There's also issues around trying to, to start businesses and, and, and getting into jobs as well. So if people want to start their businesses, there's lots of stats that show that diverse ethnic communities are um, disproportionately disadvantaged when trying to get funding and support to help them start their businesses as well. And these are all the things that really help communities to grow themselves to become more financially resilient and to become more included um so it is linked to so much more than just poverty it relates to so many other social issues and can in many ways lead to people being stuck in you know a kind of poverty trap really and powerless and unable to do anything about that in their lives and this in the situations they find themselves in you have worked with many different groups. What has been the main issue of conversation to address such an issue, both within the context of local and national representatives? I think a key part to really uh, resolving these these social issues like financial exclusion, like poverty, um, like all of the other issues we spoke about connected to that, um, apart from lived experience being put in the leadership, we think it's really important to build up the confidence of lived experience um, 
um, practitioners to understand the issues, design the solutions and where possible help implement them. But we think it's important that there's a dialogue created in partnerships. So the second part of that is partnerships. It's so important to partner with people both in the public sector, the private sector, the voluntary sector. So we're, we're working with Fairfall Finance, who is a civil society institution, um, and they work in the voluntary and civil society sector. We're working with um, the sort of government departments and regulators and civil servants and politicians to really try to work in partnership to inform them about the issues and also to to bring them into this wider conversation with those from who've got lived experience into design of policies and solutions to that and then also you've got to have that key partnership with the industry and the private sector and you know that's where our partnership with fair for all finance works really well as diane mentioned you know trying to make that financial system a bit fairer and, and ways that you make that fairer is by designing financial products and services that fit and meet and support the communities instead of keeping them in a trap it helps support those communities to do better to be real economic actors and really involved in our society and in our economic system as well so by working with the private sector to help design those sorts of solutions and design those financial service products by working with the regulators, public sector, politicians, civil servants, to try and design those policies and procedures that will really help um, the community. And working with some of those civil society, voluntary sector organisations like the advice agencies, like Fair for All Finance, um, like all of those supporting the, you know, your everyday person on the street who's, who's facing these challenges to really help design the solutions that will help overcome those disadvantages that I just spoke about, uh, those inequalities or those, those institutional barriers there. So we have to redesign the system, but we have to work in partnership and we have to use lived experience leadership to inform and shape that. Do you think the current government has the plan to support a genuine change in the community? Or, to be blunt, do you think the current system is going to properly address financial exclusion? Most definitely not. And I think unless there is that collaboration, unless there is that partnership and being informed by those with, with lived experience, I don't think we're going to get and see the change we want to see. Not not in this lifetime. So we need to we need to find different ways of working, really. And we need to find different systems to actually find those solutions. But what changes do you need to see and how to properly partnership would actually work? In terms of the areas that we're working in around sort of financial exclusion and poverty, um, I think two. So we we need to look at changes that are that are that are changes in policies, but also changes in practices. And I think the key changes that we're looking at are changes in better representation within those institutions of the diverse ethnic communities and those who are impacted by this financial exclusion and poverty. We need to get them within those institutions to create a diversity of thought and a change to the way that policies are developed, the way that services are designed and developed so that they reach those communities. So that's one of the key elements. The other element, um, the change in the kind of structure and I suppose the makeup of these institutions, and that's at entry level all the way up to board level and through all areas of the business. And I think the second thing is that element of design. We've got to design services, products, whether they're financial products and services that really meet communities where they are. We can't have this one size fits all, which often excludes some of the communities that we're working with. We have to find something that works with people in the long term and design services and products that help to keep get them financially included in some ways, whether that's loan products, mortgage products, uh, startup business products, whether it's how we assess people for credit, whether it's savings and insurances. There's lots of different things we can look at. It's all about redesign has to be led by those with lived experience. Thank you, Jerry. Um, let me get Joe Cox, Senior Policy Officer, uh, on household debts of debt justice into the conversation. Joe, your conversation is coming from a campaign background. 
what is your take on what you have heard so far? Thanks, Rippon. Great to be here and uh, really great to hear Diane and Jerry um, have done a fantastic job in contextualising this conversation um, and indeed are doing uh, fantastic work in tackling financial exclusion at a national and community level. Um, they've both spoken really well on the interconnected and complex nature of debt, poverty, class, systemic racism and uh, ill mental and, and physical health issues. Um, and, you know, um, Jerry spoke a lot about lived experience. I think that's absolutely vital. Um, you know, people in working class communities in our experience know what the necessary solutions are to the household debt crisis. Um, you know, part of our work is to elevate their voice in media and politics. And, um, you know, hopefully, you know, me and Jerry can go away and work on that together after this podcast. That would be wonderful. Um, so, so thanks for that link up, Ripon. Um, you know, these are, these are just some of the reasons why campaigning on debt is such a rich and, you know, important subject. Um, you know, I feel very privileged to play a, a very minor role in trying to prevent and tackle debt uh, amongst exploited communities. I guess you take a broader and more radical approach to the debt sector and financial exclusion. Can you explain what they are without me putting words into your mouth? Yeah, so we see the uh, various debt crises, whether that's on an international scale with the exploitation of global South countries or whether that's with UK household debts, we see this as very much uh, a political and economic issue. We see it as um, indicative of a power imbalance between uh, people with finance, people without finance, uh, nations with, um, you know, creditor nations and debtor nations. Um, so it reflects a broader power imbalance. Um, and like I say, it's a reflection of inequality and and a kind of reinforcing, exacerbating factor. You know, you're more likely to be forced to borrow if you're from a working class community. They're less likely to be favourable terms for you. And then you're more likely to be caught in a debt trap and for that to be exacerbated. So, um, you know, for us, debt that is unjust, debt that is unpayable, debt that is forcing people below the poverty line, um, debt that is weighing people down chronically for years. You know, we think that there's a, an example in um, there is a we think that in all of those cases that um, there is a good moral um, and indeed practical argument for that debt to be written off. So I think in terms of, you know, your question of we us perhaps taking a slightly more radical uh, position than other people in the sector, I think, yeah, that's probably what marks us out. You know, we think that unfair and unjust debts uh, should be written off. What is your analysis of financial ex exclusion? Or to put it another way, you focus on financial inclusion. Can you make things clear for us in terms of the definition? Yeah, so, you know, when when um, when you first uh, approached me to talk about this, um, it was a really interesting invitation because I've been having quite a few conversations recently around financial exclusion and financial inclusion policy um, with, a, you know, plenty of people in the, in the debt sector and the third sector. And I'm increasingly of the mind that the phraseology doesn't quite get to what we're talking about when we're looking at the injustices that we're seeing in our communities and the impact it's having on our communities. And so I checked the um, government definition for uh, financial inclusion before coming on to the podcast and you know the first line of that is that it's individuals regardless of background or income have the ability to manage finances in a fair way now of course we can get a better def definition of financial exclusion and fair for all finance indeed has a much better definition i'm sure jerry does too um you know they've spoken about that but i am actually uh, of the opinion now that i think that the phrase of financial exclusion is not quite getting to the heart of the matter. And I think that's for two reasons, really, because I think financial exclusion as a phrase sort of downplays the effects of class inequality, systemic injustices. And I think it also individualizes as well. You know, I think the, the origins of the term are kind of classic new labor, you know, the kind of social exclusion agenda 
Um, and I think that can often lend itself to the government speaking about things like financial literacy. Um, and once they've done that, once they've rolled out programs of financial literacy, they then kind of sit back and go, well, you know, it's down it's down to you now as households and communities to, to make sure that you can navigate these financial products and you can balance your, you know, your household budgets, um, which I think is, you know, fundamentally wrong because, the causes of the household debt crisis, the causes of the uh, debt traps in our communities are down to um, the policies that the government have indeed, you know, um, accelerated over the last sort of 13 years or so. So I think there's something in the, the definition of financial inclusion, which we, uh, which we perhaps need to challenge and update. But, um, you know, overall, I think that we know what we're talking about when we're talking about financial exclusion. And Diane and Jerry have done a fantastic job in doing that. Debt justice has been working globally as well as locally. Do you feel that there has been failures of various institutions from your analysis? Yeah, absolutely. And to try and draw out some of the commonalities that we see uh, internationally and in terms of UK household debt, I think there's, you know, there's two, there's two main things that we can point to. One is that there is um, inequality and power imbalance between creditors and debtors. You know, it's um, a reflection of that power imbalance and whether that's um, internationally or whether that's at a household debt level, that is generally replicated through the institutions. So, you know, the global financial institutions, whether that's the IMF or the WTO or whatever, is generally wired in a way that benefits creditors, that benefits financial lobbyists um, at the expense of um, people in the global south. And likewise, if we look at UK politics and we look at uh, the UK household debt crisis, you'll see that Westminster is is captured by similar financial interests. You know, it's it has a much more of an open and revolving door to the big banks, to the creditors, to the bailiffs lobbying, um, all that kind of stuff. It has a much more, um, you know, Westminster is much more interested in the, the creditors and the debt collectors than it is in listening to the voices of, uh, exploited and underserved communities. Now, um, you know, this is something that we as campaigners have to address. We have to tackle that. You know, Jerry talks really well about the importance of um, of lived experience. And I think, you know, this is a, a political issue, as I say, and we need to be working with communities um, because they know the solutions to the problems that they're facing. But ultimately, we have to build our collective power um, to get into those doors, you know, to get into the rooms of um, the civil servants and the politicians, the ones making the decisions. We have to make sure that we're, you know, we're at least as powerful as the lobbyists and the financiers that we're taking on. I mean, you talked about the imbalance. Um, do you think the failures uh, can be undone? If so, how is that possible? Yeah, I think the, the failures absolutely can be undone. I think one of the main problems that people in debt face is that they feel the shame and stigma and the fear that comes with that. And, you know, uh, organisations like Jerry's, um, indeed the uh, work of credit unions and CDFIs um, across the country are absolutely vital in tackling uh, that stigma in bringing people together and giving them roots out of debt and helping them to meet other people that are in a similar position to them you know I mean ultimately you know it's Westminster that has failed but it's our communities that are that are paying the price now I think the only way that you know we can fight back properly is by coming together and by sharing stories and um, coming together to to really to resist a system which pushes people into debt and then exploits them when they're in debt. So um, there is a way out of it. You know, there's always a way out of, of, of injustice, um, but it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. You know, it takes bravery. It takes organisation. Uh, it takes lots of conversations um, and it takes, um, you know, leadership as well. Um, but thankfully, we've got all of those things. And, you know, throughout Together Against Debt, campaigning groups across the country, we're beginning to see 
people come together and to tackle some of these injustices. So, you know, in um, in Glasgow, quite recently, we managed to get hundreds of thousands of pounds of school meal debt written off as a result of, uh, of that campaign. You know, we're actually managing to change, significantly change some of the rules uh, around council tax collection in Manchester as a result of some of our campaigning with Acorn the Union. So, you know, there is no shortcut to, to solving these problems, but with leadership and collective power, we will get there. You talked about debts written off, but going back to financial exclusion, can you, you demonstrate how we resolve financial exclusion from a point of view of campaign? Yeah, I think ultimately, you know, just to kind of pick up on, on some of the themes that I've already, you know, I've already um, spoken to briefly that... I think, you know, the only way out of um, this crisis of financial exclusion, of exploitation of underserved communities is to build collective power. You know, as I said before, that unless we can be stronger than the lobbyists that are in Westminster, unless we can have our voices heard and our stories told in a more compelling way, than those lobbyists and those people that are generally well represented in the media, um, you know, unless we can be more powerful from that, uh, than they are, then we won't solve the household debt crisis. What roles do banks play in this to reduce financial exclusion? Or do we just put the spotlight on government representatives? Banks have a big responsibility. Um, and I think that, you know, our, our mainstream high street banks do have the kind of infrastructure and scale and money and staffing to you know to play a really important role in tackling financial exclusion and we've seen that you know over the past few years with the expansion of basic bank accounts you know you know they can you know when they when they work with government and government forces them to they can they can help tackle uh, financial exclusion and they can do that at scale and they can do that quickly um but ultimately you know um the big high street banks are um, first and foremost, interested in um, in uh, creating and um, making returns to their shareholders, and that's the number thing, number one thing that they get up thinking about in the morning, and that's the number one thing that they go to bed thinking about. So, unless uh, regulation is strong, you know, and and unless uh, government is really representing the views of people in our communities that are financially excluded. I don't think they'll do it on their own. I did invite senior government representatives to speak on debt talk on today's subject. Unfortunately, they declined. For those who are listening to Debt Talk podcast and want to share your experience or want to hear a subject of your choice, you can get in touch with me, ray at yourdoctordebt.com or on Twitter, yourdoctordebt. Let me go back to my panellists who are coming from a diverse range of background to provide Debt Talk listeners top tips to those who are trying to address the cost of financial crisis. Let me start with Diane from Fair for all finance. So for individuals um, that are listening to this, that it's a real and present problem that they're, they're struggling with, don't wait to seek help. You know, there are organisations that that are, are out there. Um, providers, you know, have a duty to help with forbearance and, and, and breathing space. For organisations, collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. No one single organisation can solve the complexity of this problem. And it, it takes that bravery, talking together leadership that's been discussed today. Jerry During, MBE from Money Any. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably just echo exactly what um, Diana said. I think if you're in trouble um, yourself or you're, you're in a difficult situation, you need to reach out and get support. There are a number of advice agencies out there that can support you with issues around the cost of living. Um, the Money Any website has um, a sources of support area, and you can also talk to our team of advisors or financial educators to, to support with that. Um, in terms of another tip, which I think is really important, is sometimes we bury our head in the stand. If you have the ability, talk to your creditor, as Diane said as well. Um, there are a number of things that 
creditors should be doing to support people who are facing financial vulnerabilities. There's lots of different types of legislation. There's lots of industry policies and government policies that they should be doing to help people in financial crisis. Um, and I think a final tip that's really based on a model of how we work is that there is always hope um, and there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, there are always ways around this. Um, as I said, we're based on lived experience and talking to people who have been through it or people who've got the experience to support you through it. So, again, it just goes back to what I said, reach out to agencies that can support you, talk to your creditors at the first point as well to explain your situation. They should support. If not, then go back to those agencies to get help. Um, and again, if we're talking to listeners who are from institutions, both in the public, private, voluntary sector, partnership, listening and working with each other to really overcome these solutions is going to be really important. And finally, Joe Cox from Debt Justice. I think I'll just echo what Diane and Jerry have said, which is that, you know, you should speak about any money worries, any uh, arrears, any debt which is concerning you as soon as possible. Now, you know, that should be kind of formally and informally. So informally, speak to your friends, speak to your family, even mention it to colleagues that you trust and, you know, um, and also go um, go and seek professional advice as well as soon as possible. So go and talk to independent and free debt advisors. There's fantastic ones um, in your community, there's also national debt lines, step change, citizens advice, these national um, debt advisors, which do a fantastic job as well. And this, then and the other final thing I'll say, and that's just to give a plug to our Together Against Debt work, which brings together people with lived experience of debt. And, you know, through that, through speaking about uh, people's experiences of debt, then, you know, they generally begin to feel a bit better about the fact that it's not just them. They are not alone. This is something which, you know, has been caused by Westminster and it's our communities that are paying, paying the price. And, you know, it's time for us to fight back. I would like to thank my panel members for giving their precious time to speak on today's subject, the cost of financial exclusion. My next podcast is on IVA or DRO. That is the question. Thank you for listening to Debt Talk Podcast with me as your host, Ripon Ray.